Hi, welcome back to Relative Digressions. I'm Renna. I'm Flick. And this is the podcast where we go back to old Doctor Who and look at it with, in my case, fresh eyes and in Flick's case, seasonal eyes. This episode, we're looking at the five Doctors. Yeah, so this is an episode released for the 20th anniversary of the show. And it's in the Peter Davison era, but it's notable because it also features, sort of, all of the previous Doctors who are pulled out of time to Gallifrey, where they encounter various old enemies and companions of the Doctor from throughout the series run as they try to make their way to the tomb of Rassilon to uh, uncover a sort of Agatha Christie-esque mystery plot. I feel like that's overselling it, but carry on. Well, there, there, there is a mysterious. I mean, there, uh, there is, there is, there is an aspect of the plot which is mysterious, but I, I mean, I mean, that's it. It, it is not a story yep. that has great plot depth going on. The point is basically to take all of the ingredients of classic Doctor Who and throw them together on Gallifrey with a lot of bibble about Time Lords and Rassilon and right, Eternal there's, there's Life. Right, the bit at the end with Rassilon's tomb, and that's quite a cool scene. But I would describe this as basically pick and mix Doctor Who. I would draw a slight distinction in that I think Doctor Who quite often does do pick and mix episodes, where I mean, so I mean, the, the it's often the joke that the extended media and particularly Big Finish will be like, like ah, the Sixth Doctor is reunited with Jamie McCrimmon in the land of fiction, which is being invaded by Cybermen. Uh, that's an actual story, by the way. Um, and so, so like that, that's pick and mix Doctor Who. Uh, and that, like that was already a thing that they'd they'd done like big episodes of like oh we've brought back this and that sure this is more like we've tried to get everything we've tried to get as much as we can okay maybe the maybe the description I've been searching for is uh, and this is actually more apposite given that this was actually the twentieth anniversary special uh, it's like a celebrations box yes uh, in the certainly part of the gimmick here is that you have all the favourites. Uh, and I think we'll discuss the degree to which that is actually true. <laughs> yeah. Part of the thing is that maybe you'll tune into this, even though you haven't watched Doctor Who for a few years, because, oh, it's an event. And whatever you remember from when you did watch is going to be there. Right. Unless exactly. what you remember is William Hartnell. Or, uh, <laughs> yeah, or Tom Baker doing anything other than punting. <laughs> uh, yes. Or, or, or maggots. Didn't we have a previous discussion where we said that the maggots are the most memorable part of Doctor Who? Yes, there was meant to be a bit more of the John Pertwee era iconic gribblies, but they, they didn't make the final cut. We were going to have some autons in there. Yeah, there's a little bit of a sense that this story just could expand to fill whatever budget you gave it, and at some point they ran out of budget and time. And it's not that it feels unfinished, it's just that, like, literally if you said to them, we're going to double your budget... I'm not sure there would have been any more plot, but what there would have been would be a lot more chase scenes. The Five Doctors is is a, is a gas. It expands to fill the space allowed. Yeah, exactly. Uh, like we've already sort of alluded to it, but the plot is very non-existent here. Uh, but that is not the point. What's quite interesting is that whilst it is not plot heavy in any way, there is this very slight whodunit element about somebody's behind all of this, somebody's brought them all there, and who is it, and somebody gets framed, and the Doctor suspects the Master, but actually the Master's on the side of 
good for once and then it's like oh it turns out it's the person you least expect who you actually most expect um and there's a secret room behind a painting and so there's all that kind of murder mystery oh yeah that is in as much as there is a plot beyond just a mashup of doctors and monsters that's where the storyline is but it, but it, I mean, it's very minimal. So throughout the first part of it, which is when we see each of the doctors being kidnapped, we see a shadowy figure in a room. And so there is a, as Flicker said, there was a quite a nice scene where there's a painting with a, a mild puzzle, uh, and it gets opened, uh, and then we see the room again. And I think it says a lot about the story that there is a hidden room is the pinnacle of the plot. Yes. Uh, 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 in front of the painting is a harp, and the painting is of a harp being played with some notes on, and the doctor plays a note. Uh, I should say it is not just any harp it is the harp of rathalon it is the harp of rathalon which opens a room in which stands a man wearing the coronet of rathalon who is trying to get to the tomb of rathalon to learn the secrets of rathalon the tomb of rathalon is in the tower of rathalon uh the master carried carried around the seal of rathalon everything in this episode is called of rathalon the way, correct way to say something is not like oh this is the pencil of rathalon you go this, this is the pencil of rathalon <laughs> and this becomes both a running joke and a sign of great import that from ever afterwards every every important thing in doctor who is something or other of Rassilon. There are lots of ways in which this episode has made this big dint into fandom. And what I was going to say is that whilst the plot is very thin, the lore, the, the story is not very deep, but the backstory is deeper than usual in Doctor Who. Right, uh, and that's quite interesting because it... Um... It sort of creates this impression. It doesn't necessarily detail all that backstory even, but it gives you enough pieces and sort of shows you how it might fit together. So we learn that this death zone, which is a place where the Time Lords in the bad, the bad old days used to kidnap people and put, uh, kidnap other species and put them basically through an entertainment. That's a thing that the Time Lords used to do. So whilst we're told that the death zone predates Rassilon, the thing that they used to kidnap people and make them do in the death zone is in fact called the game of Rassilon. Right. I feel like a lot of the old Rassilons might be like really good branding by Rassilon. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd forgotten actually... In my memory, the episode basically just presented Rassilon as a surprisingly jolly, wonderful person. And it's only later that that got darkened. But actually, that's not true. Right from the offset, they they do the thing of like, what was the person behind the myth? And the second Doctor speculates that maybe he's not even dead. Maybe he wasn't a good person. It's really interesting how much... I think Chris Chibnall must have really gone back and paid attention to all of this stuff when planning The Timeless Child. Right. Because people say, oh, Chibnall just contradicts everything that went before. But you go back and you're like, oh, actually, in retrospect, this now actually seems to just be the groundwork for that. It really seems to foreshadow it. Oh, we should mention actually about what happened at the end, which is essentially the secret of Rathalon is the immortality. And basically it's a trap. If you if you put the ring of Rathalon, that's another thing. The, if you take if you go to the Tower of Rathalon and find the tomb of Rathalon, um, and ask Rathalon for the secret of Rathalon by putting on the ring of Rathalon, you'll then find the trap of Rathalon, which I don't think it's called that, but it might as well be. Because to win is to lose. Uh, and actually it turns out that to win the game of Rathalon and uh, gain immortality, actually you just get trapped in Rathalon's tomb as like a living statue. It, it prefigures the end of Love and Monsters that you basically get turned into a face in a slab of stone right but sadly with less love life so i shoot i don't know there are six of them in there right but they can't 
Let's not speculate. Um, <laughs> so, so it's it's actually a very classic fairy tale story in many ways, because uh, there is a proverb at some point which is literally to lose is to win, and he who wins shall lose. Yeah, well, so not only is there that proverb, there's also a nursery rhyme which tells you how to get into the tower. Right. Uh, the whole thing has a you know in the way that say especially especially the fifth season of New Who was said to be very fairy tale. Mm, yeah. Well, this this is quite fairy tale. It's quite fantasy, really. There's nothing really very science fiction about this i mean fundamentally the time lords are essentially wizards yeah um and they teleport people using wizard powers to their or, or they are teleported using a by an, a secretly evil wizard to a place where they fight monsters so i, I should mention this is it, it looks lovely it's got this wonderful gothic expressionist style and a lot of it was shot on location um, but the sort of the imagery it evokes and the landscapes they've chosen, it's all shot in Wales. There's the classic Welsh quarry in there. But there's also these really gnarled trees and sort of big rocky plains and outcroppings. And it looks yes. like Robin Hood or Merlin or one or like the, the never-ending story. Yeah, it's interesting because for me, Gallifrey, I only ever seen it as the desert sort of thing, which is portrayed as a new in New Who. <laughs> yeah, if you look at this and then you look at Gallifrey in New Doctor Who, the conclusion you reach is that the death zone is the most lush place on Gallifrey. Right, exactly. It's, <laughs> it's ironically named. <laughs> I think part of the reason the law did survive and bed in is because it has that fairy tale and mythical quality, that ambiguity. A lot of it you can't directly contradict it because it's already a legend. So, uh, which is always good because it means you can only what you can only add to it. It's funny actually. The last episode we watched was the Mind Robber, and actually, the the structure at, of the Mind Robber is not dissimilar to the structure of this. It's true. It's kind of like oh, we've scooped up some people and dumped them into a storybook. Right, and there's kind of an episodic thing where they encounter Dalek, a Cyberman, a Rastan warrior robot, a Yeti for some reason. The the sort of children's storybook, they're just kind of there and they run into a monster and have an encounter and they run into a monster and have an encounter and the Time Wards are a bit like wizards and there's kind of these myths that don't have a lot of substantiality or sense to them. That is a microcosm about how the non-enfranchised fandom probably perceives Doctor Who. Oh, that's an interesting thesis. You're saying that in some ways the five, do the five Doctors is almost like an illustration of what it's like to think, experience Doctor Who as a non-enfranchised fan. As yeah, someone who's sort of I think engaging. the five Doctors really embodies what this is what Doctor Who seems like if you're not a hardcore fan. And then it ironically then sets a precedent for hardcore fans in defining a lot of what Doctor Who is. Hmm. That actually brings me on. Now, I don't yet have the context for this. Um, is this episode like anything that's come before it? Right. Obviously, this isn't the first Fifth Doctor story you've seen. You've seen The Awakening, but at the time I said that that, that was not very representative. This feels a lot more like the Fifth Doctor's era. Not so much in terms of that fantastical element, but the way it looks, the sort of style of performance the the production values the and i mentioned this on the awakening the 
lack of a really strong touchstone in any like one genre. Mm. Mm. I mean, we, we, we've said that it feels a bit like fantasy, but it has elements of other stuff. I mean, you, you mentioned you invoked Agatha Christie. There's clearly a mystery element. It's, it is clearly kind of science fiction. The Fifth Doctor's era is just kind of telling stories. It's not... I, I know I said this already when we did The Awakening, but I'll, I'll just quickly go sort of reprise what I said there, that, you know, the Tom Baker era, Hinchcliffe and Holmes were doing horror or what have you. If the Fifth Doctor era isn't doing that, the Fifth Doctor era is just coming up with stories to tell the tone, the style, follow the story rather than the other way around. But this has got the, what I would call, the, the texture of a Davison episode. That's kind of what I was wondering. But whilst it has a sort of a texture of the Fifth Doctor era, in a broader sense, this isn't, a, well, I mean, it literally isn't a normal Doctor Who episode. It was a 90-minute special, standalone release, not part of a season, Oh, it was a children. It was a children in need special. Oh, I didn't realize that. That's fascinating. I will say it wasn't conceived to be. Um, that w- they originally conceived it to go out on November the twenty third. Sure, but it is significant. I think. Yeah. Well, so yeah. Um, that that kind of ties into what I'm saying here, which is that you know what it's doing isn't a thing that Doctor Who's done before. The Three Doctors has been done, but the Three Doctors was serialized within a normal season of Doctor Who. The Three Doctors is the germ of the idea, you know, it's it's an anniversary and we're going to get back some old Doctors. But beyond that, it's a normal serial within a normal series, whereas this being a standalone, a special, mm. uh, bring back everything and it will but it's going to, we're going to have everything and we're going to bring every we're going to try to bring everyone back and I I think it's very it's really significant for modern Who, and it's it's an event. I like maybe what I'm trying to get at also is that it is an event right. that is designed to sort of uh, have a a broad appeal. Like I said, to bring back people who maybe stopped watching or haven't watched Doctor Who even. Um, right. Like you, you're going to tune in for this, even if you're not normally a Doctor Who watcher, which is not something that the Three Doctors was so much doing. But if we look, jump forward in time to the specials, right? Well, season. you're kind of getting ahead of what I'm, what where sorry, I'm going sorry. with this, which is that despite not being like anything that had come before, Doctor Who fans latched onto the Five Doctors as this is what Doctor Who does in a kind of a weird way. There's no like because there's no real reason to go, oh, we've done it once. That's that's what we do. But from then on, the idea that an anniversary is coming around, you get everybody to come back and it's an event and it's special and it has to be a news item and tying with children in need. This is what Doctor Who does. And the the real exam- notable example is... How much does this remind you of Dimensions in Time? Yes, I actually have had this realisation as we've been talking, but even before you started this bit, yes, the episode this really reminds me of is Dimensions in Time. Exactly. Like, it it really feels like that. And the things that the things here that would bother fans and the things there that bother fans aren't things that matter to a casual viewership who, for whom well, this is what Doctor Who is. Yeah, I, it, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is. 
Uh, and of course, Dimensions in Time is the 30th, is that right? So, Dimensions in Time and Day of the Doctor, and whilst the show was off air, that we also had anniversaries and Big Finish did um, Zagreus. Big Finish also did, um, for the 50th anniversary, The Light at the End. All of these things are modelled on the five Doctors because they're, the, for some reason, fans latched onto the five Doctors as, this is what Doctor Who does. This is an intrinsic part of Doctor Who's DNA. Indeed. Well, I was looking at what happened for the 40th. Was that when Zagreus came out? This is 2003, of course, which is quite interesting, right? Yeah, there wasn't there wasn't a great deal of fanfare in the wider world. Apparently there was a programming event on the UK Gold, which was a Saturday and Sunday of, like, showing the curse of fatal death. And <laughs> Well, you know, but... Even the curse of fatal death, I think, looks and it sort of behaves like it does because it has in its head that it needs to be like the five doctors. Yeah, you're right. Uh, maybe not the Dalek bumps, but I, I think you're actually quite right that the fifth Doctor feels like it set a template. Uh, and it's interesting actually to reflect going forward slightly, if I may, mm-hmm. to reflect on the way the Christmas specials, the year of specials. Yeah, I mean, just the idea of a special. I think the end of time feels a little bit luxurious and a bit overindulgent in this way. Uh, and of course, uh, who, who also appears in the end of time, but... Rassilon. Yeah, although Rassilon's name is actually only given once incredibly fleetingly. Right, uh, he is he is Rassilon, but like this isn't made a big deal of. But for the fans... So where am I going? I, I suppose, yeah, this episode feels like it, 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 it sort of started something. And of course the 60th anniversary is coming up, isn't it? Pretty soon, yeah. I mean, we're not far out. It's three years' time? Uh, yeah, pretty much exactly. In fact, if if we've done this right... This episode should be coming out just in time for you to listen to it on the anniversary this year. So yes, welcome to the 57th anniversary special of Doctor Who. The special of Rassilon. The special of Rassilon. Ah, episode title, sorted. Uh, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, so I um, I don't know what I'm going to do for the 60th, but it's hard to imagine it won't to be to some degree influenced by this episode. It, it, now, it might not happen because actors, contracts, Tennant and Smith, big careers... The idea that they won't consider a multi doctor is is un- like they absolutely yeah. it's unthinkable. It's unthinkable that they won't always consider it. Yeah, I think I think they will consider multi doctors. Obviously, they won't get Eccleston. Well, 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 is he well? well is he well? This is the thing. I, I I would have said a year ago. Say, oh, they, they won't get Eccleston. Everyone, I mean, he, he yeah, a year ago it'd have been like Eccleston isn't coming back until he's ninety nine, but. But now... Well, it's, 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 I, no. I think the thing is that he clearly feels... I mean, you know, you see him talk about the show and it, it, it you know, gave him so much pain and that's difficult for him. To, so so no, no one should press the man to come back. Absolutely not. But certainly if he comes back, it will be entirely because he knows that it will reward the fans and that's what he wants yeah, to exactly. do. Yeah, uh, exactly. And I, I think that's... That... But let's not forget, he did speak to Stephen Moffat about Day of the Doctor... Yeah, I, 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 I got the impression it sort of, in the end, didn't pan out, but it wasn't because of it necessarily. So, so, so it's well known that there's just, I think, two people. One of whom is not involved in the show anymore, so we won't talk about him, but one of whom is kind of, who he really didn't get on with, yeah. which is that he famously didn't get on with John Barrowman. But they don't need to bring him back for the special, you know? No. And, and realistically, if it is still Chibnall in charge, which is not necessarily guaranteed in three years' time. That's not a guarantee. In fact, I, I, I'd be... I'm somewhat surprised if it is actually, because three years, Chibnall's already done 
three years now. Yeah, it, it's actually quite a while. The weird thing is, though, it will probably be a new Doctor by then. I find it really hard to believe Jodie will, will still be around in three years' time. I feel like Jodie will come back, uh, like if they do a multi-Doctor thing. That feels quite likely. You'd expect that if you do a multi-Doctor, you get whoever was the most recent to return. <laughs> Although, of course, <laughs> I, literally, as I said that, I suddenly <laughs> we were talking about the five doctors. Yeah, indeed. So we are we so, talking about the five doctors. Oh, wait, Jodie will appear, possibly as a waxwork. <laughs> we, 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 will, we will further discuss Tom Baker's <laughs> presence or not in the five doctors in a little while. But, yes... But I, I think I mean Jodie Whittaker will have had a big impact on the show, but she is not going to be a historical, big, long, expansive Doctor in the way that Tom Baker was. I think it's very hard to imagine she wouldn't come back uh, unless some, yeah. unless there is something, you know, some really bad feeling or something happens, which doesn't seem like likely. I mean, the the obvious one that even now would sell uh, sell tickets. I mean, it's it's a television. You, you know what I mean. The the one that would put the bums on the seats would still be David Tennant. And I don't think that will have changed in three years. No, I I, I think I want to get Tennant back. I actually would consider bringing Tennant back during season three, just because I like I like Martha, but also I do think you should have some old companions back, and uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't want Rose. I think that would just shake the story too much. But Martha isn't. Although the way that Billy Piper was used in Day of the Doctor was very clever. Yeah, that's true, but that was because they didn't have Rose back. If you sort of mean. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, tell you what though, because they're canonically married. Uh, you could, you could. Yeah, no, I was, I was thinking. Martha that. and Mickey is what you were. Oh no, canonically married, right? Not actually married. I was thinking about Jenny, about bringing Tennant back, doing a story involving Jenny. Oh, that's, that's also quite interesting. A bit weird, given they're married, but yes, uh, that, that is that, that that you could quite do that. The point is, I think, I think if I was bringing Tennant back, I would bring Tennant with one of his companions or. Do you know what I mean? Like you want, I, you'd want a dynamic thing there. Yeah, so that that would set it apart from Day of the Doctor, right? Which doesn't do any which of that. Kind didn't of thing. bring companions back, even though Billy Piper was in it. The thing is that they've had a succession of quite tragic endings, but uh, you could. Uh... Or oh, River, River, River Song would be an obvious one because then you get River to meet the Doctor's post Capaldi, and there's definitely drama in that. So River is an obvious choice. I mean, the funny thing is that one possible outcome, of course, is that the BBC decides to finish the show in its current form. And we've said before, and I think I've already been convinced that that would be a bad thing, but it could happen. And we um, we lock John Levine <laughs> in a room with no access you, you, to music You mean Ian equipment. Levine, but yes. Um, we, we lock Ian Levine in a room and present it from happening. Yeah, exactly. We don't want Doctor Who's best to happen. But uh, if you were doing this... Uh, the, the natural way to end it, you would make it a celebration of the entire revised series, and so and so, and that under that circumstance, I could well see them even getting Eccleston. If we're trying to get all the canonical main doctors, you obviously can't. We can't uh, reanimate the corpse of John Hurt. Um, but you say that, but um, technology does improve. So, I was going to say, like, you know, like so Star, Star Wars, Star Wars can do it. <laughs> like, but we shouldn't commit necromancy on John Hurt, and there are good reasons why you wouldn't want to wait. Wait until the next like Alien movie, and Ridley Scott will reanimate John Hurt. <sighs> but I, I could see them doing that. I, I could see them doing it even if they're not cancelling the show. But I'm just saying that. Yeah. I, I, I think it's quite unlikely that the BBC would cancel 
Doctor Who under a cloud. I think they would ideally like to do it in a last big hurrah and then we mothball it. I, I think there's a lot to be said for... Other people have said this, this isn't coming from me, but that that will never happen. The show will die under a cloud because that shows don't get cancelled when they're doing well. Yes, indeed. But this, this is my fancy scenario, right? So, but I, th- but I okay. think, I think making it a celebration of all of New Who in general would be quite sensible. The the thing is that nobody has done as well at fleshing out their tenure as RTD did, and you risk it being really RTD influenced. And of course, we've already done it for the RTD era in the Stolen Earth. In- incidentally, Stolen Earth owes an awful lot to the five doctors. Just because of that big everyone's together for... It, it's like, it's a celebration. We're going to bring absolutely everyone back. It's a really long chunk of the five doctors. It's basically just a vignette of, hey, look, here's an old character, and now we're going to pull them into the story. Next one on the list. Next one on the list. And that's basically what the entire first half of The Stolen Earth is. Um. Okay, I agree, but I, I think... I, I don't think that has to be the case. There's a lot of Moffat. There's more Moffat who, or as much Moffat who, as there was RTD who. Yes, but I don't think his era has as strong a definition. Maybe, but I think there are things that define it. I think Chibnall would be the note that would struggle, but because, you, because you'd only have one Chibnall Doctor... Yeah, although the last series of Jodie has laid the groundwork such that by, by the time three years rolls around, the Chibnall era might have a really strong identity. True, but it has not started, I think, with a strong identity. Uh, I think, uh, incidentally, having River Song would give you the Moffat notes. Like, River Song is the yes. Moffat companion, right? You, you, yeah, uh, right, And yeah, actually, definitely. the only one you can really have back, you can't have, you can't have the ponds, you definitely can't have Clara. You can't have the pond. You can have the ponds, but it feels... It's weird, isn't it? Because all those companions just had quite definitive and quite tragic endings. The ponds had quite an interesting arc, right? Actually, looking back. Um, yeah. And I just think that disrupts it. Which is something, of course, that New Who has done more, whereas in, in Older Who, it's often like the companions are just there now. I mean, notably, what one of the things that The Five Doctors does, and it doesn't draw as much out of it as you'd expect, although it does open with a pre-credits, is that it does revisit the ultimate final goodbye to a companion, the very first goodbye to a companion, which is Susan's departure. Indeed. They open with the scene from Dalek Invasion of Earth, which is uh, the first Doctor saying goodbye to Susan. Maybe the most famous first Doctor scene there is. Yeah, and it, and I'm not sure if I'd seen it before, but it, I feel like I must have done. This is the only bit of William Hartnell you get in the episode because Richard Herndor plays the character for the rest of the episode. Yeah, and this is another uh, this is another link to the the sister show of Doctor Who, which is that William Herndor had William Herndor I fused the Richard two. Richard Herndl had recently appeared in Blake 7 and it had been remarked that he was very Hartnell-like in Blake 7 and that's why they came to him for the Five Doctors. Well, that's quite. That's really quite interesting. I, I had wondered kind of the second of him getting cast. Obviously, with David Bradley, it's because he... They, basically, the reason they cast him in Twice Upon a Time... Was because of Adventure in Space right, and Time. Right, it just made sense. And, and actually, in some sense, he, he had embedded himself in the public consciousness as... As William Hartnell? Yeah, I mean, so an interesting thing here is actually the extent to which 
the complaints about Bradley Hartnell could also be levelled and have been levelled at Herndall Hartnell. There really is nothing new in fandom. Yes, I think Herndall is playing as Bradley is, and I think Bradley did it better, I want to say, an impression of the First Doctor, a memory of the First Doctor. Yeah, Herndall was actually better than I recalled him being, but there is, and it's both in performance and in writing, and maybe actually it's more in writing than in performance, and... A pastiche element. Yeah, pastiche is a good word. Notably, both the Five Doctors and Twice Upon a Time feel the need to do a gag about the First Doctor being a bit misogynistic. Right. Despite the fact that I'm not clear that that was a written component of Hartnell's character. Like, no, exactly. That was That's a meta component of the 1960s. And actually also far more prevalent in the Troughton era than in the Hartnell era. And in poetry as well, as, as we noted when we were watching The Mutants. Yes, uh, that was more conscious, though. And that's interesting because they're deliberately writing it, but they seem to have got, they've back-referenced back it as if it's a component of William Hartnell's first Doctor. Well, actually, I, mean, I think I've heard it described before. William Hartnell doesn't play the first Doctor except in the three Doctors. William Hartnell plays... The yes, Doctor. I think quite. either we've made this observation before, or I've definitely. It's this isn't a new idea. Although actually, William Hartnell did once suggest that he could also play the son of Doctor Who. Essentially, that he would play another sort of the reverse of it's the same time or different actor. He suggested he could play another generation of Time Lord that was the same actor. Ah, that's quite fun. That's very nice. I like that. It's a bit wacky. So at that point, he was kind of thinking of the role in a sort of... In, in kind of the same way that you get when there's more Doctors and... Was this, was this when he was playing... When he was still playing the Doctor? Yes. Right. And he sort of suggested that after he left... Um, I think he actually suggested that he would do it at the same time. Oh, I see. So more like the uh, enemy of the world. I think he was basically just canvassing for more work. <laughs> okay. Yeah, he's like... <laughs> uh... <laughs> Like the spirited jobbing actor that he was. Good on him. Yeah. <laughs> Equity approves. Um, just rack up those credits. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just not a bad idea, is it? So that's what the first Doctor is for me in this episode. And he doesn't appear in it that much, actually. Uh, you get a little bit of him. It is a shame. I mean, it works. It works for the story and it works well. He's paired with an adult Susan. Like, it's quite nice that she's an adult Susan and not Susan at the age when she left. It's quite nice. But it is kind of a shame that they didn't bring back Ian and Barbara. I don't know if... Because Ian was meant to be in Margin Undead and they he wasn't able to be. So I don't know if that put a damper on maybe bringing him back in. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. And it's... um. Susan is odd, actually, in this, because they play that scene at the beginning, but they never really... There is no chance for them to dialogue, actually. No, there isn't. There is, the way the moment that they find each other again is lovely, and there's, there is a real sense of, like, something unspoken there. But then it is kind of... It's a bit like The Awakening, where uh, Tegan goes to visit her granddad and then never actually does anything with him. Right, exactly. It's, it's there for the sake of it. 
So, I guess that's all I want to say about the first Doctor. Uh, can we go to the fourth Doctor? He feels like the natural next one to... Right, yeah. Let's start with the Doctors who aren't quite in the story. Tom Baker did not film anything for this episode. What they did was they got some scenes from the abandoned story Sharda, which has been later reconstructed, I think, multiple times. We will do Sharda as a special at some point. I mean, we could do a whole season of different Shardas if we wanted. <laughs> right. The, the the great irony being that this the the famous lost Doctor Who story exists in more completed versions than any other Doctor right, Who so story. So let's not get into full description of Sharda now. But actually, my suggestion is we watch all the versions of Sharda and just do full <laughs> full Sharda. Um, but so they get some scenes of. Tom Baker punting along the cam. And that integrates fairly well. It integrates well. fairly well. And then they basically just sort of yeet Tom Baker and Ramana. He spends the, the the whole Gallifrey period of the story as a still image wibbling on a, a TV screen. Because something has gone wrong in the transmat or whatever it is. The scene splice they use when everybody gets returned back to their times fits a lot worse than the punting scene at the beginning. I can't remember what the scene splice is when they come back. He's climbing under a fence. And it kind of so he waves to Romana as he climbs under the fence, and so they cut him just as he waves, as if to sort of wave like "Hello, I'm back." And it doesn't, it just doesn't work at all. I mean, it's hard, right? You know, uh... it is hard. But one thing that occurred to me literally just now was what they could have done is approach Lala Ward to appear as Romana too, and you get. A better feeling of integration if Romana makes it to the death zone and only the fourth doctor doesn't. And actually having Romana turn up offers you the chance to talk about the lore of Gallifrey and not have to just have it delivered by I the Doctor. I thought we should mention, for those who are unfamiliar with Old Doctor Who, which are some of our listeners, hopefully, uh, Romana yeah. is a uh, companion of the fourth doctor who has to, who is a time lord so actually it makes a lot of sense. The, the, the production context here is a absolutely definitely wanted all five but they just they just couldn't get baker to yeah, agree yeah. to it originally it's tom baker who would have carried that agatha christie plot line which is interesting because in as much as there's a story that being the story it makes sense that davison does it here because he is the incumbent and that is that is the elephant in the room it is that baker would upstage if he was here and there was there was a kerfuffle about the fact that Baker was in Day of the Doctor. Right. And I, I see why he was. It was the 50th anniversary and he is the most iconic yeah. classic Doctor. Absolutely. Possibly yeah. the most iconic Doctor. Although David Tennant really has, you know, that was the golden era. And we are living through, with the Time Lord Victorious, essentially... Uh, the BBC pressing yeah. hard on that emergency button that says initiate full initiate full tenant nostalgia. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Deploy the merchandise of Rassilon. <laughs> Before we move on from Tom Baker, um, it's also worth noting that he also didn't do any press because obviously if you're not actually in the story, it's quite weird to do the press. But they wanted a photo shoot of all five Doctors. And this is a very famous photo shoot that um, you will see from time to time, often when people are slightly ragging on Doctor Who, because they used the Madame Tussauds waxwork of Tom Baker for the photo call. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a lot of really funny, candid behind-the-scenes shots of um, Patrick Troughton just making merry with the waxwork. Well, I can imagine Patrick Troughton being uh, uh, 
<laughs> playing silly. So, but... so let's talk about Troughton and Pertwee, and you kind of have to talk about them oh, together. God. Oh, because God. they so have I've such so... a camaraderie. Sorry, I've just looked at that. Uh, no, I'm sorry, I just looked at the photograph. Of Tom. Of Tom. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it uh, incredible? Uh, uh, if I had to summarise, like, what the five doctors is, I would just show <laughs> someone this photograph when normally all the doctors are there, but there's a very obvious... Yeah, it's just... It's, it's like... <clears throat> I mean, every... every Everyone is having fun, though, especially Patrick Troughton, who, like, Peter Davison looks a little bit like, huh. Patrick Troughton is just clearly having the time of his life. But Patrick Troughton's having such a jolly time. Well, shall we Shall we move from Tom to Patrick? Uh, because actually, I I, um, I think I'm, I'm really liking Patrick Troughton. I really look forward to more of his episodes. I like him. I, in- Troughton steals yeah, this. Yeah, he, this- he gets the best. He gets the best material because he gets to spend the entire time playing off the brigadier, which is just golden. Which incidentally was not meant to be. So I believe how it was meant, quote unquote, meant to be, was that um, you would have uh, poetry with the brig, which makes a lot more sense. Like a lot more sense. Yeah, yeah, uh, of course. But basically, without the absence of Baker, everyone rotates. Well, there was a bit of shuffling, right? So, um, who does Pertwee end up with? So, Pertwee, Pertwee consider, they considered having him with Liz. Interestingly, I don't know how much thought was given to using Joe. I don't think that they really thought about that, oddly. Yeah, which is... Uh, he gets a reunion with Sarah Jane Smith, but Troughton... Here is a notorious little bit of Doctor Who history, because there's a plot... Hole. Right, so so we probably should mention this. Um, the the absence of the actors to do what they originally planned meant that instead of Victoria featuring, Zoe featured, which ne- necessitated a rewrite of the script as originally planned. Jamie and Zoe appear, and they are apparitions, and the Doctor works out their apparitions because the Time Lords wipe their memories so they shouldn't know who he is. Now, as originally written in the script, it was Jamie and Victoria, and they call the Brigadier the Brigadier, and the Doctor realises that they're not real because when they met the Brigadier, he wasn't the Brigadier, he was a colonel. Right. This has been rewritten, now it's Jamie and Zoe, Now the Doctor says, but you shouldn't remember me. Here's the problem. Jamie and Zoe's minds are wiped immediately before the Time Lords exile the second Doctor and he regenerates. So, and this, this, I believe, is the thing that necessitated the invention of Season 6B. Is that correct? So, Season 6B doesn't come to its full fruition until another multi-Doctor story, The Two Doctors. Right. But the plot hole introduced here has... In, in in sort of true Doctor Who fashion, had a proper butterfly effect that has led to the creation of entire seasons of extended media stories. Right. Uh, essentially because you need to actually change it so the Doctor doesn't actually regenerate at the end of the war games and yeah. pootles around doing some other stuff first. But the other the other consequence, and the much more fun consequence, is it means that instead of having one of his companions, and Jamie would have made the most sense... Troughton is paired with the Brig, and they have just just the most enjoyable rapport the whole way through. They're both kind of old, but not like elderly. So it's got this slight sense of watching, you know, like one of those, like when Michael Caine would do like a, oh, getting the lags back together for one last job 
sort of feeling. Yeah. It's got that feeling. Like either they're basically just having a, they're just having a good time, and that's really obvious, and it's really fun. It's, he he like they get they get a lot of the best and funniest writing. Both the actors and the characters. But also they're both really on top of their game and Troughton is just a delight to oh, watch. So good. So good. He's just superb. He is inexplicably wearing a giant fur coat for like half of it and it looks great. There's a lot there are a lot of fur coats in this in this story. I assume it's really pretty cold. Yes, that is exactly why. But it is funny because they do meet one of the Yeti, and it does just look a bit like they've skinned a couple of Yeti. Their, like, their use here makes sense because they were a recurring enemy that only faced the second Doctor, so using them as the second Doctor's kind of bit makes a lot of sense. Right, which is fun. I've just found a nice picture of Patrick Troughton um, tying string to the hand of the uh, Tom Baker waxwork. One thing that you always do with a multi-doctor story is that you can't have them all together all the time. That just swamps everything. So you tend to only bring them together at the end, which is a model that the five doctors creates. And when Troughton and Pertwee get together, like they, they notably, if you ever watch the outtakes the behind the scenes, those two just constantly, constantly like needling each other and like playfully like having the time of their lives but just endless bickering and needling and that translates into how their characters play against each other and it's just so much fun to watch the third and the second doctors like poke at each other which actually was the backbone of the three doctors right because yeah hartnell doesn't appear much in that so in fact hartnell's purpose in the three doctors is the time wards send him to mediate between the other two because they can't get on with each other that brings us nicely to discussing the third Doctor. He's in this... Uh... He gets around a bit, actually, doesn't he? How do you mean? He he doesn't just have one bit, like a lot of the other Doctors do. He kind of pops up here and there and just meets everybody in the story. Yeah. He meets the Master, he meets Sarah Jane, he meets the Cybermen. For a second I forgot the Master was in the story. There's, there's so much in this first story in which nothing happens. Um... <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, he's just sort of there. He's a lot. He's he's in Bessie. He's kidnapped in Bessie. I, I think Pertwee carries a lot of the episode comedy. Yeah, which is funny because you'd think it would be Troughton, and Troughton is funny. But I don't know. Just I think it was like more absurd. I think he looks quite foppish. He's also got this like he's carrying himself in a kind of like I've been here and done it all before way. The fifth and first Doctor are dealing with the most drama and the most peril. The second Doctor is kind of siloed with the Brigadier doing a double-act thing. The fourth Doctor isn't actually in it. The third Doctor is kind of... I'd say he almost serves as like a chorus. He kind of knows what's going on and just pops up here and there and everywhere to be the one that knows what's going on. He's paired with Sarah Jane, incidentally, which is a weird pairing because, of course, I associate her more with the fourth Doctor. It's quite an interesting pairing because like, that's an on-screen pairing, but it's a pairing of the third Doctor with a Sarah who's actually left the fourth Doctor. Yes, exactly. Oh, it's worth noting, briefly, when Sarah's introduced, you get your first experience of classic Who K-9. I, I do. Uh... I have no opinion on it really. It it's a it's, it's a robot dog. I, I I'm never gonna feel emotionally attached to K9. I'm just I'm just quite I think that's not true. Really? Like you, you will grow attached to K9. You will. I guarantee okay. it. When I first started watching Classic Who, I was like, K9 
canine. What a rubbish nonsense. Why on earth did they keep this around for so long? And by the time the school reunion came around, I was like, it's canine! It's chameleon that I'm really excited for. Uh, and, and you get to see the eye of Orion at last. Right, well, that means nothing to me. Cause... No, 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 it does, because the Eye of Orion is where the Sixth Doctor wants to take Perry at the start of Time Lash. Ah, yes, indeed. I've say that the the opening scenes on the Eye of Orion are incredibly, like, tranquil, and, like, Turlo's there, and he's having a sketch, and... And actually, now you mentioned Turlo, it's nice for the first time in this podcast that we're, you know, we're meeting companions again. They don't actually do an awful lot. No, well, no one does an awful lot, do they? But their main purpose is to be the ones that tell you that something bad is happening to the Fifth Doctor, and it's dangerous, and you should be worried. They don't have much role in the story. Well, no one has much role in the story. They they work surprisingly quite nicely with Susan. Yeah. It's one of the nice things about these sorts of episodes, right? I very nicely Doctor Who. You can't do that very easily on other shows because it's tied up with Doctor Who as a premise. Yeah. You kind of get it on soap operas sometimes. That's true. Yeah. But, and, and I think there's a, a... Ah, so this is Dalek Dimensions in time. Yes. Ha-ha. <laughs> uh-huh. uh- <laughs> Again, like, I don't really understand the EastEnders half of Dimensions in Time, but if I understand correctly, Dimensions in Time is also bringing back, like, old EastEnders characters who weren't in the show anymore. Yes. There's actually something to be said about the way in which uh, soaps do do event television. Yes. Like the fact that, like, famously, you know, everyone in Watford has an incredibly bad Christmas. Every Terrible Christmas. Christmases. Yeah, just... London gets invaded by aliens and everybody has an awful <laughs> Christmas in Watford. It's why, because, of course, uh, EastEnders happens in the extended Doctor Who cinematic universe or Doctor Who is happening in the extended EastEnders cinematic universe or whatever. Um, but, of course, they never notice the alien invasion on account yeah, of, of course, how... Yeah, they're, they're also busy having terrible times. Right, exactly. On account of someone's too busy burning down the Queen Vic for the insurance of falling off a building or something. Yeah, I, 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 that, that, the soap comparison is very apt, I think. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that in great detail before. Well, I think it's one of those things, one of the things we're trying to do with this project, if I might be slightly self-reflective in this episode, it's already quite self-reflective. Uh, but actually what we're trying to do is find these new takes that happen because of our different perspectives. But before we get properly reflexive and delve back into things now that we have the context, now that you've seen all the well, Doctor I, I, stuff... We, we, let's talk, I want to talk about the Master in this episode, actually, before we... Oh God, I'd forgotten all about the Master. There's a lot going on. There is a lot, a lot going on. Um, and also not very much. Why me? Because we need someone determined, experienced, ruthless, cunning. And disposable? Not at all. You would be useless to us dead. Will you go? Will you? And rescue the doctor. <laughs> Right, so let's talk about the master for a little bit. Um, we we've done the master, yes, but we haven't really done the master. No, no, because we saw him in the movie. But other than that, no, exactly. There's not been, and this isn't really a master-focused story. I mean, I I, I like uh, is it Anthony Ainley? Yeah, Anthony Ainley. He's quite good. He has this real sense of a man who doesn't quite know why he's there and resents it a bit. Not the actor, to be clear, the character. And and there's this wonderful scene where he basically turns up to the third Doctor, shows him his seal that the Time Lords have given him, and and he's like, this is obviously a fake. Takes it off him, drives off. Then later, when he when he finds <laughs> the other Doctors, <laughs> the Master's just there, like, well, 
And later, when he finds some of the other doctors, uh, the fifth doctor, I think he does. The fifth doctor doesn't believe that he was sent by the time because <laughs> he doesn't have any proof. And he's like, well, "It's a really good gag." <laughs> it is really funny. Um, the master is kind of the the butt of the joke. Yeah, he is kind of the butt of the jokes here. He doesn't really have a plot purpose, and in fact, he accomplishes nothing. He teams up with the Cybermen briefly, if only to betray them. Yeah, and then he tries to usurp Barusa's plan at the end, but he bunkles that as well. He basically tries, and then doctors go, no. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> right, I'll go and stand over here. I could get power. <laughs> no. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, the math is kind of a joke character here. Like, no one in this, none of the doctors, none of the characters have any time for the master's b- even the Cybermen are like, no, exactly. what, what have you got to offer us, mate? <laughs> he does do a good portrayal. The bit where he does like walking, the walking across the laser. Okay, so that is the most ridiculous scene in the whole thing. Let me spell this one out for anyone who hasn't seen the Five Doctors. There, there are three ways into the Dark Tower that contains the Tomb of Rassilon. One of them involves... The tiled floor of Rassilon. It's not literally called that. It is a tiled floor, black and white, you know, like a chessboard pattern. Now, it starts by introducing this trap quite cleverly, which is that if you stand on the wrong tiles, it electrocutes you. The trap doesn't turn on until you're halfway across to trick you. And you're like, oh, okay, that's quite clever. That's a good trap. Well designed. But then the master turns up with the Cybermen. And he demonstrates that it's perfectly safe by walking backwards and forwards across the tiled floor several times. And the Cybermen try it and they get blown up. And then the Master tells the Doctor that it's as easy as pie. And he skips across the floor one more time and goes on his jolly way, chuckling to himself. And the Doctor realises that this was a cunning clue. Because it's not pie, P-I-E, but pie, the mathematical constant. Pi is the key to crossing this floor. Quite in what way Pi is the key is not explained, and the Doctor proceeds to just walk across the floor, and it's ridiculous. I thought maybe that it's like the safe tiles are like counting along three. It's it's it doesn't yeah, make sense. It, but so like the Master crosses this floor several times, and then the Doctor crosses it once, and. That, like, there is no blocking or anything. They don't tread on the same tiles as each time. They don't even tread directly. Like, sometimes they just stand in the middle of two tiles. Like, like it is farcical. It's the kind of scene people think of when they think of NAF Doctor Who from the 80s. I, I, I love it. I, I, I absolutely love it. It's a farce. It isn't the best scene in the... Sh- in the... No, the best scene also involves the Cybermen, and it's the one where the Raston Warrior robot kills them all. So I don't think we've ever met a Raston Warrior robot before or since. But basically, it's a man in a silver Zentai suit, and that sounds... You're, you're going to be like, well, that sounds bad. It is not. JNT directed this scene. I don't know quite what the story is there, why he directed this scene. And... Based on this, John Nathan Turner should have done more directing because the scene of the Raston Warrior robot just KOing all of these Cybermen is so, so dynamic. I mean, so they've got some budget to spend on setting fire to Cybermen costumes and that helps. And it's location shooting, that helps. Even so, beautifully directed. The scene of the Raston Warrior robot just annihilating a squad of Cybermen, just so cool really makes up for the fact that the other half of the Cybermen die by walking on a kitchen floor. Actually, what the Raston Warrior robot reminds me of is Super Sentai Power Rangers, where like a guy in a robot costume like beats up a bunch of gangsters in a quarry. 
Yeah, I mean, part of it is the costume, but but the way it, but yeah, you're right. The way it's shot, the kind of choreography and blocking of it, it does feel. I don't, I don't know if the time periods are right for that to be an influence, but I definitely see the comparison. And and the Raston Warrior robot to say like this is the only time it ever appears. It is one of the more remembered creations amongst fandom. So it is the only original creation in the Five Doctors. Yeah. Which, given how much stuff is in the story, quite impressive. Their armaments are built in, and sensors detect movement, any movement. Anything else I shouldn't know? Yes, they move like lightning. So the last point I would make is not about the story itself, but in a meta sense about the history of Doctor Who and where this stands in it, that this is the high watermark. It's celebrating the 20th anniversary by bringing back all of these things. You've got a clip of William Hartnell. You've got all of the old Doctors kind of... It's going to be go. It's a ninety-minute special. It's going to be going out. It's a, sort of like a news story, and people will watch it. You don't normally watch Doctor Who. It's got quite a large budget, like not extravagant, but definitely bigger than the show normally has. Like lots of location shooting, all these pro. Like it's big and it's special, and it is a celebration of the fact that Doctor Who is in fact big and special. Yeah. But we are not far away from Doctor in Distress. No, we are... We are three years away from Doctor in Distress. It feels a little bit like the way in which stars go supernova and they get very big just before the collapse. If the dates had worked out such that the anniversary had occurred in Tom Baker's last season, this would probably have been even bigger. So in a sense, we are actually past the high watermark but we didn't mark it in the, in the same sense as like if Day of the Doctor had come about in the end of the Tenants era, it would have been even bigger than it was. Apt comparison, and that means we ourselves are only we're six years away. From Somebody doctor. put Levine in a cage now. Get it ready. Get the six cable years. ties. Six years. We are six years away. It's three years to the anniversary, and then it is every right-thinking Doctor Who's fan's job hmm. to stop Doctor a Doctor in Distress at all costs. No, it won't be funny. No, it won't be good. Do not engage in it. Do you know? <laughs> we say no passeran to Doctor in Distress. This is this <laughs> is the line. Um, all right. I th- so. so it is interesting to look at the fact that this got made and this could get made and it's meant something now. And yes, we like the two doctors, we do a multi-doctor story again. And yes, we do an anniversary story again with Silver Nemesis, but Doctor Who is never going to be this thing again until 2005. So are there any other things we want to round up with before we sort of say goodbye? Yeah, so this this is kind of a question that I can't, answer even going back and doing the podcast there's no way to separate my existing perspective but you are now in a good position i think 
possibly the best position, having seen one of each, to answer, did you detect, or are some in some sense, I'm sh- it definitely exists, but what element or elements were were the constant, the thing that was always there, that runs through all of it? So you're asking me for what 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 is the what is the heart of Doctor Who? Yeah, maybe or not. It doesn't have to necessarily be that important, but just what things did you detect that that's interesting that were always present? Okay, so hmm. I'm not certain there is anything, but it sort of feels like there kind of is. I mean, in a sense, I, I think. There's almost nothing because the nature of the show is its chameleonic nature, right? Yeah, like the cliche is that like the only constant is change. But it's not even quite that, is it? But and yet there is something inherently Doctor Who, right? Right, so this is the thing, is that I feel like I could say whether something is Doctor Who and isn't Doctor Who. And indeed there are episodes of Doctor Who presumably which are not very Doctor Who. We we talk about this all the time. We say things like this is very Doctor Who. Hmm. Is it the case that there are multiple different strands of core Doctor Who identity and none of them run unbroken all the way from an unearthly child to the timeless children, but there's always at least one of those strands running at any one time. Yes, I think I think that is a really great way of putting it. So I think the TARDIS, not the actual object itself, which obviously is there, but the way in which the sense that you got in, say, the Awakening or the Happiness Patrol... Where both of the situations, it's about people arriving to a situation already in motion. I yeah. think very rarely in the stuff that we've watched, and I think very rarely in the series as a whole, is the presence and arrival of the Doctor the catalyst for the situation. Right, yeah. There's something about the way in which he is a wanderer, and the companions are wanderers, even though the companions change. And that's it. In our next block, it'll be interesting because we're going to go to the unit era, the era when the Doctor wasn't travelling, didn't arrive somewhere new each week. Right, although wasn't the catalyst for the situation either. Yes, the Doctor doesn't initiate stories, usually. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that sh- sure people can send us counter-examples, but like, apart from in Moffat's time, kind of more timey-wimey stuff, where that kind of stuff does happen. Yeah, I mean, the Matt Smith era is the... Uh, I, you've heard me waffle before about this, like, Matt Smith's apotheosis. He becomes God, the universe revolves around him. But in the Capaldi era, you get move away from that again, and he says the whole thing about he's just um, a fool with a box passing through, helping out. Yes, exactly. And that that is, I think, if I had to ball down who, I wouldn't say a bunch of stuff about never... Ne- never cruel, never cowardly. All the moralising yeah. stuff, which is, which is good and important. But there is just something about the scope and scale and the sensation of rolling through time and space um, that feels very essentially who. So I realise that this is the inevitable question, and I realise that it is in some sense a rubbish and unanswerable question. But who is your favourite Doctor? Or, or how would you rank them? Hmm, so probably bottom of the pack currently is the third Doctor. Now, that's a function of the fact that we only saw him in the Mutants. I've not seen lots and, and the five Doctors. I'm not... I thought you were going to say Tom Baker. No, uh, I, and that, that's funny, isn't it? Because I thought I might too. But actually, 
No, uh, and that partially that's just because I, I I just found the misogyny quite even though it's deliberate. I just found it quite difficult. And yet you've put him below Colin. Baker. Well, I, so I'm about to say that Colin's going to be my penultimate one. I haven't seen. I feel like I've not seen as much as Colin. So it, that stuff, as, as we said at the time, really bothered me. But I just I can sense Colin and John might switch, and indeed John might go up. I'm not sure about Colin. I, he's obviously done some great work. I've heard on the audios, but just. Obviously, the show was in a difficult place at the time, but Time Lash itself was quite a fun episode, which I think is is why it f- is fond of my memory. The Mutants, obviously, that covers some difficult content, but it was quite long, and the best bits about it were not the third Doctor. Yeah. So, currently, I'm not feeling great about three. I mean, fine. None of these are like, I hated them. So, I think second, Colin, uh, I found a bit with Perry, as I sort of said at the time, really difficult to, to, to watch, and... I have yet to get a sense of what he's exactly he's about. Uh, next is actually probably... Yeah, I think it's probably Tom. Mm-hmm. This isn't denigrating anyone who really loves Tom Baker and thinks they're their favourite Doctor. He's okay. I, I find him as an actor quite distracting. I think I like my Doctors a little less, actually, being the focus of everything. Yeah. Um yeah, I, and I think you're seeing this slightly in, in this. Good, room. that that's promising. That means that you might have put the right one at the top. It's a lot of pressure now. Um, I, I think I know which one you mean. I'm not sure I'm going to satisfy you, but so I think probably next is Bill Hartnell, as you say at the time. Mm-hmm. All the Battle Press women, but his his potential is growing on me, and I'm quite excited for seeing more kind of black and white classic hosts. So, so that there's a special place there. Uh next I think is Paul McGann, whose Doctor I liked. You should, and I will never see more of on screen. <laughs> Sad face. <laughs> yep. um, I really actually want to go and read some stuff and maybe do some audiobooks of of him, uh, which is of course where he's had his lot. That character has had its long a long afterlife, longer of course. And it's huge, huge life. life. Uh, and I would screen. love to explore that. I really liked him. I just think he didn't have enough space. The movie is. It's. I. I feel like I feel fonder about it the more I think about it. Okay. So now, now I think yeah. we're in the top three, right? So. This is difficult. I think currently it's Patrick in third. That makes sense. I really like him. Really fun of the Five Doctors. Fun of the Mind Robber. Very talented actor, I think. Um, I like the clownish thing. Just uh, then I think it's Peter second, Sylvester first, which I think is the wrong way around, and you wanted me to put Peter first. They are the wrong way around, but I cannot fault that choice of the top two. And it must be said... You did come in with like one of the best McCoys rather than one of the crap McCoys. Right, precisely. I, I want to recognise it. I mean, I loved the Awakening, and I think this really actually reflects. Like, I think I remember really liking the Awakening. I remember really liking the Happiness Patrol. I was more abused about the Happiness Patrol. I think Sylvester McCoy is a very modern Doctor, so similar to how Paul McGann is. I really like him. Davison is great. I think I just liked what was happening with Seven slightly more. I can feel the potential. For Davison to get the top spot, and and the thing also the thing about Davison that kind of ties into him being that slow burning passive presence is that no one story is going to jump out at you and go it's Davison he's arrived because because he he he's a slow burn right but that that's what I like um, I also think Trout Patrick is going to struggle to climb just because of how much Patrick has lost and I think that's really sad because he's such an expressive he's such an expressive actor yeah it's a shame the five doctors gives you a really good idea of like what he's like when he's really on top of his game yeah exactly uh so yeah that's that's kind of where I'm at I am not going to attempt to integrate modern doctors into this I I think they're in some sense impossible and it even feels weird to put Paul McGann in there 
I, I think it's really notable in study that, 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 that when talking about the five doctors, we actually talk more than we have in any other episode. I mean, this is kind of a special, but the point is we... It's really hard to not talk about Doctor Who as a whole show and the experience of it, and the because that is what this episode in particular is. Which I think actually points to the fact that the Five Doctors really works at what it wanted to be. Yeah, absolutely. I like, and some people really don't like the Five Doctors, and I can understand why because of the lack of plot or whatever. But like, I enjoyed it. It was a romp. I think that's what I said to you. I, I said I, I sort of messaged you on Facebook Messenger, and I was like, "Yeah, that it's... was a romp." It's the spirit of Doctor Who. How can you not? It's just good fun. It's just, it's just good, clean fun. It'll soon be goodbye then. Will it? Well, you're off to Gallifrey to be president. I suppose your time and old subjects will find a TARDIS that really works and get us both home. Who said anything about Gallifrey? You told Chancellor Fay. I told her she had full powers until I returned. You're not going back. You know, sometimes, Tegan, you take my breath away. <laughs> Uh, well, the time lords be very angry. Furious. You mean you're deliberately choosing to go on the run from your own people in a rackety old TARDIS? Why not? After all, that's how it all started. So, I think that's a really great place to talk about relative digressions and the journey we've been on so far as a whole. So we've seen virtually all of the eighth Doctor there is to watch. Obviously, there is a lot more in the extended universe, but that we're not covering that in the scope of this podcast. Um, we've watched one episode from every classic Doctor, and... It's kind of funny that you've watched one episode of each Doctor, but as a representative sample, proportionally, you know, you've seen basically the entire Eighth Doctor era, whereas you've barely sampled Tom Baker, you've got a fairly hefty dose of Colin Baker, you've not really done much of Pertwee, like... You've seen one episode of each, and yet proportionally, your understandings are not equitable. No, absolutely, which is which is a weird place to be. So, um, what are my thoughts so far? I'm really getting a, a sense for what the show has been at various points. I think more than I had before, and I'm looking forward to that continuing to deepen. I think also we're trying to, to some degree, break through the veil of memory and experience the episodes. Right, this is what's interesting to me. This isn't a Doctor Who rewatch. And I think a Doctor Who rewatch, which is a fine and noble thing, and many people do it, I I think gives you a a different experience. I very intentionally tried to avoid doing them in Doctor order as much as possible, because I think the, the juxtapositions... First of all, that's how a lot of people come to Doctor Who. Very few people go like, I want to get into Doctor Who, I'm going to start at the start and work all the way through, although some people do. I think that's probably a terrible idea for most people. If you I don't do. know that it's a terrible idea. If you have a certain mentality, i.e. you're me, then actually it's probably not a bad plan. But the, the sort of juxtaposition and jumping around, that's how people are going to experience it. So it's in a sense, it's more authentic. Also... It allows these comparisons and contrasts. It allows our <laughs> relative digressions. You may now all applaud and leave the auditorium. Right, precisely. I mean, we've we've actually experienced in this one the the fact that we happened to watch the mind robber before this led to a comparison that I don't think we would have done if we hadn't seen that. And we certainly wouldn't keep talking about the bloody monk. Yeah, no, exactly. And we could talk about how the monk could be in the Fifth Doctors, but we won't 
In fact, like, the master in this is in a very monkey kind I of... I said that we won't, um, but we could. And, and I don't know, I, I, I feel like it is, and I, I'm not underselling our thing here, but, you know, we probably won't finish every episode of Doctor Who on this, only because, to be, to be quite honest, the latter half will be watching a lot of Tom Baker just because of how much that there is. You know, I tried to plan it in such a way that you don't just backload all the Tom Baker, but there is invariably the point you get to where... Unless you've kind of gone in order or been very careful in how you put it out, what remains to you of classic Doctor Who is just Tom Baker. Do you want to give people maybe a bit of a preview of what they can expect from what, if you like, it will be season two of Relative Digressions? Yeah, I mean, it's not an extravagant Cartmel master plan, but... We're not going to do one of each Doctor. For one thing, there's no more McGann episodes. The plan is to structure the next run of episodes a little bit more. Because, like we say, we're unlikely to cover the entirety of classic Doctor Who. And there's certain things that we don't want to miss out on. I would be quite excited if we managed to get to... So you're listening to this on the 57th anniversary. And if we make it to the 60th, I think we'll be doing quite well. Uh, and probably at that point, we will be at the point where basically all that's left is a huge stretch of Tom Baker. A vast tract of Tom. Um, but yeah, so we're going to try and hit certain bases and we're going to try and hit them in a way that will bring out the best conversation. So the next few episodes, we want to talk about the Cybermen because we haven't talked about them yet, apart from, you know, briefly. Getting wrecked by a robot. We want to go deeper into the master and pick him up from Delgado and then how he changed in the Tom Baker era and... We want to talk about pure historicals for Hartnell. We haven't talked about pure historicals yet. So it's not just an arbitrary smattering of stories. The plot arc for the next run is going to be less holistic in that sense and more we're going to try to draw out some themes. Uh, incidentally, um, if there is an area of Doctor Who that you think we are neglecting so far or that you'd really like us to cover... Or if you want to tell us you really like the show so far, or if you want to tell us you hate the show so or far. Or if you're Ian Levine and you want to sell us on the idea of Doctor in Distress. We will not answer your emails. But <laughs> other than that, uh, you can email us on relative.digressions at gmail.com and we really like to hear from you. So this is a great time to tell you that we are not going to be back in two weeks' time, as you might have expected, on the 1st of December, and neither are we back two weeks after that on the 15th of December. But on the 25th of December, which I understand is a special date for some people, we're going to be doing a Christmas special. The 25th of December is a very special date. It's the date that the next Doctor Who episode comes out. That's true, yes. So on the day the next Doctor Who special comes out, and all the world rejoices... We'll be doing an episode on... On Christmas specials. I, I pitched this to Renner as a mini-episode. Renner's response was, that will not be a mini-episode. So we're, we're, it, may, it might be a mini-episode. It might be six hours long. We don't know. It remains to be seen. <laughs> we don't know. Uh, but we're going to do a mini-episode, which might be a maxi-episode, on the 25th, uh, to talk about Christmas specials. But then we'll be, we'll be back with the full launch of season two on the 1st of January uh, and then we'll be back to our regular schedule. Yeah, uh, we will be coming back with The Leisure Hive. I'm really excited. I just want to say, uh, as I said before, thank you all for listening. Um, but did you have any last thoughts? Um, timing. What? Timing.
So is this is this a joke? Because I'm 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 actually failing to get it if it is the pun. Well, you know what the secret to time traveler humor is. Go on. Ah! <laughs> oh, it was me. That that went so well. That went so well. <laughs> we have been relative digressions. Thank you for listening. Relative Digressions is a 2020 production by Renna Robson and Felicia Barker. You can find us on Twitter at WhoDigressions, on Facebook under Relative Digressions, or email us at relative.digressions at gmail.com. The music is Sonic 1.0 by Sonic, S-O-N-N-I-K, with additional sound from Red Sky Lullaby and Luffy. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in the future. <laughs>